Let's open our Bibles, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're right, obviously, in the middle of Mark's Gospel. That's nothing too brilliant, but um, it's a real turning point. We've been talking in the last few weeks about uh, this change that's been taking place in the in Mark's account of Jesus' life. This period of preparation is ending. He's, been, he's spent now almost two years, uh, by most calculations, uh, with the disciples, laying out the groundwork for what is going to come. And two weeks ago, we had that incredible encounter um, where Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter gave the right answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And um, spot on. And then Jesus proceeded to tell them what that meant. And Peter said, uh, you're wrong. It's great. I love it. Uh, Peter said, Lord, that's just not how it's going to work. You're not going to go to Jerusalem. You're not going to die. You're the Messiah, right? You're supposed to go to Jerusalem and take over, right? Um, and what we saw in that moment was how clearly the disciples, even with their two years with Jesus, still were not on the right page for what Jesus being Messiah meant. Um, over the last couple of weeks, um, I've really tried to avoid the word paradigm because we use that so much in our culture, but there's really no getting around it. We're talking about, you know, we use the phrase paradigm shift. Well, this is the, if I can use the expression, mother of all paradigm shifts, right? These are people who, a group of people, the people of Israel, who for literally thousands of years have been counting on a Messiah who's going to look like this. And Jesus is saying, I'm the guy, but I'm not going to look like that. Fundamentally different than their understanding of who Messiah would be. Yeah, you're right on the Messiah, but you're wrong as to what that means. And so now we're in that shift of Jesus trying to realize, and I will not use the paradigm word again, uh, Jesus shifting their thinking to what they should be looking for. And he went on to explain to them very rapidly, it means I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I will be betrayed, I will be arrested, I will be horribly treated, I will be crucified. No, he didn't say I'll be crucified. He didn't say that. He just said I'm going to die. I'll come to the importance of that in a minute. And that's when Peter said, no, that doesn't work, Lord. And then Jesus dropped the real bomb. He said, and as for you, if you would follow me, take up your cross and follow after me. Now, I don't know if I touched on that last week or not, but that is the first time the word cross is used. Now, let's, before we even get in the text, let's just think for a second what that did. Because, I mean, the, the cross was what in their mind? It was nothing, nothing more, nothing less than, like, the most horrific punishment a human being could be subjected to. It was just, it was nothing, absolutely nothing good about it. All bad. Horrific, you know, our English expression, excruciating, comes out of the Latin word for cry. I mean, it's just horrible. And Jesus said, you guys are going to pick up your crosses. And that had to be, if it hadn't already happened, the moment when each one of the disciples said to himself, I got to rethink this thing. I got to rethink this deal. This is not what I signed up for. There is nothing in this picture that appeals to me. All right, Jesus, if you want to go to Jerusalem and die, that's your business. I don't think that's what you're supposed to do, but if that's what you want to do, you know, do it. But now you're asking me to do what? Totally out of the question. Totally out of the question. You know, I think sometimes we look at the disciples and we marvel at how 
you know, dull they were, like they just don't get it. But if we stop and think about what Jesus was saying to them, it is no wonder they were left totally confused. What is this guy talking about, right? So we're at that point. We're right at that point. They went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was seen metamorphosed, which is to say what? His outward appearance changed. The inner person was the same. It was simply his deity radiating out through the tent of this mortal flesh. And then the father said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. We talked about that last week. The importance of listening, of hearing. Hearing what Jesus had said. And I don't know if we talked about that last week either. There's just so much here. That's another huge shift in how the people of God think. And just Again, we're trying to get into their head a little bit to understand the full impact of what Jesus said. They've been living with, you know, Ten Commandments, and I always forget the number. How many rules and laws? Like 613 or something. They got a slew of rules to follow. But that's all they have to do. Now, admittedly, following 600 and whatever, 13 rules isn't easy, but at least you can wrap your brain around that, right? What is coming and is intimated in the Father's words, this is my beloved son, listen to him, is now we're no longer under those 613 laws, right? Praise God, we're no longer under the law, right? Need to be aware of them. I'm not saying we should neglect them. We need to be aware of them. We need to be conscious of them. They give us a very good description of what righteousness looks like, what godliness looks like, what Jesus looks like. That's what the law does. Paul said it's a tutor to bring us to Christ. It says this is Jesus right over here. So we need to be conscious of them, aware of them, but we're not legally bound to keep them. Instead, we just have to listen. Listen to what he is saying. That's got a lot of freedom in it, but it's also got a lot of responsibility in it. We can't just, if you will, sit back on this list of rules to follow. Now we have to walk in an active, dynamic, living relationship with our Savior, our God, with an ear attuned to him each day walking as he calls us in this walk of what? Self-denial, taking up our cross, following after him whole radical shift in what it is to be a follower of God. Totally different. And so the disciples, I'm sure their minds are just like, you know, completely jumbled and they're wondering what's going on. And that's where we pick up the story as they're heading down the Mount of Transfiguration. So Mark chapter 9, beginning in the night. It's a short passage we're going to look at this morning, but it's really big. Uh, Verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, saying, what is it that, Why is it that the scribes say Elijah must come first? He said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet how is it written, the Son of Man, that he should die and suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you, Elijah has come, indeed. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it was written. Father, thank you for your word as we look to it this morning, Lord. Um, Help us, Lord, to hear your word. Help us, Father, to simply do what your Father instructed your disciples to do, and that's listen to you. That's what we want to do this morning. Jesus' name, amen, amen. 
So we've already pretty, I think, pretty well set the context. We know what's going on, so we've covered that. But what I want to do moving forward is, first of all, look at exactly what was said, what Jesus said, and then try to see how that impacted the disciples based on their framework. We want to get into their heads a little bit to understand how it affected them and then ask the question, what was he actually saying? Because the disciples' first impression wasn't necessarily react and accurate. In fact, it wasn't accurate at all. And then ask the question, what does it mean to us? So first, what did the disciples hear? What did Jesus actually mean? And then how does that affect us? And that's what we're after. So first of all, we say that they're coming down the mountain. He gave them orders not to relate to anybody what they had seen. They heard that kind of thing before, right? Until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. That's new information. And a lot changes in that instance. You know, up until then, from the moment Peter had said, you are the Christ, and then Jesus said, let me tell you what that means. It means I'm going to go to Jerusalem, be mistreated, die, all that. And by the way, you two are going to take your... It's not been a lot of good news. There hasn't been, from the moment of Peter's revelation until not a lot of good news. And then he says, until the Son of Man rises from the dead. And it says the disciples seized upon those words. They grabbed those words. That's the first good news they've heard in the last several days. That's the first thing they have seen that would curd, that would, would cause them to say, you know, maybe this deal that Jesus is talking about, this new definition of Messiah, isn't such a bad deal after all. Maybe there's more going on than I thought about, right? So they grabbed it. And the word that's used there, it's a very forceful word. It's the word krateo. And we normally use it, um, or it was normally used in Greek and even in our English language, in the idea of rulership or power, krateo. It's, it's part of our English word democracy, the rule of the people, the demos, or aristocracy, the rule of the elite, or several words in that word group. We're talking about rule or power. But it, gains, it gets that idea of rule or power because it implies control. The person in control has and the person in power has control. It word that means to grasp so as to control. So the disciples heard Jesus say that. Don't repeat any of what you've just seen or heard until the Son of Man raises, is risen from the dead. Boom, I, I got that. I got that. I'm going to hang on to it. Now the question becomes, what does it mean? So let's just talk really quickly about what that would have meant in the disciples' hearing. Well, if, if you've read your Old Testament, if you know your Old Testament, and that was, of course, the baseline for their understanding, you know that when we start talking about life after death, the Old Testament is kind of vague, to be quite honest. There's just not a lot of material there, right? Um, uh, there's the idea of, of Sheol, which is the abode of the dead, but it's pretty clear that Sheol is, whatever it is, is a place shared in common by both righteous and unrighteous. The idea that whatever happens there, you know, if you're righteous, it's good, and if you're unrighteous, it's bad, that really isn't there. And, and if, if you want to read more about that, just look at what Solomon says about that in Ecclesiastes, which is just, you know, generally not a real uplifting book until you understand the full dynamic of the book, but Solomon despairs. You know, he talks about the abode of the dead is where, well, both the righteous and the unrighteous go, and who knows what happens once you're there. So it was not well defined. And we find expressions like describing Abraham, for example. It says when Abraham died, he was gathered to his people. 
Well, I don't know about anybody else, but I remember when I first read that, I thought, what in the world is that? I mean, did that mean they, like, collected his remains and everybody, you know, what did, what did that? Well, all that really illustrates the it's expression that Abraham was gathered to his people is the idea that in traditional Jewish Old Testament thinking, the full intent and focus is on this life, not a lot of said about the, past, the future life, and what really counts is to be seen in the community of the people. Much stronger understanding of the value of community than we traditionally have in our culture. And unfortunately, even in Western Christianity, we just don't understand community as strongly as the people of Israel did. And so the idea that Abraham was gathered to his people simply meant that he would not be forgotten and that his memory, even his conscious. Now, this may be reading a little bit more into it than we should, but it, I think it expresses the thought. His, his existence would continue to exist in kind of this collective consciousness. He would still be part of the collective consciousness of his people. That's what it was to be gathered to his people. He's dead. He's gone. Where he's gone, we really don't know. But we know he's still with us in that we remember him. All right. That's kind of the general thinking of the Old Testament. And there was a significant shift in the Old Testament, if, if, if you read what the scholars have to say, before the exile and after the exile. There were, there were groups that did talk, like the Essenes, the people that did the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, they did talk about life after death in a little more detail. Um, but that was not universally held by any, any sense at all. In other words, it was just kind of vague. All the focus was on how you live in this life. And as far as death, all that really counted was the when and the how. Live as long as you can and die as peacefully as you can. That's good. Anything less than that, not so good. But no more than that. Now, we should talk just for a moment about the secular understanding of life after death because that would have been part of the disciples' worldview as well. It was out there. It wasn't much better. All the focus was on this life. There was a consciousness of life after. Instead of Sheol, they used the word Aedes. And the only real difference was the involvement of the Greek mythology stuff. It's called Hades because Hades is in charge. It's the, that guy. So, but as far as specificity, no. There were, like the Essenes, mystery religions among the Greeks and the Romans, and they had more ideas, but those were like outliers. In general, there just wasn't a whole lot of information out there. And yet, both Jew and Greek had this sense that it was important enough to consider that, th that things should be thought of. And, of course, Solomon explains that, too. He says he has put eternity in the heart of man. And then it goes on to say we don't know what that means. But so we have this instinctive longing. There's something else there. So even from a secular perspective, the disciples are not left with a lot of information. And all of a sudden, Jesus opens the door. He says, when the Son of Man has risen from the dead. One interesting thing I should add is that unlike the Jews who could hear that and go, yeah, maybe that's cool, because if I rise from the dead, again, I'm incorporated into the community again. So strong was the sense of community. The Gentile had a totally different view. If you know the book of Acts, for example, in Acts chapter 17, when Paul was preaching in Athens, and he raised the issue of resurrection the, the local scholars mocked him. They wanted nothing to do with it. 
They wanted to be separated from the frailties and the limitations and the weaknesses and the illnesses of this mortal clay and get on, whatever was out there was better than this. So just in general, not a lot of hope. But then Jesus says, do not repeat anything that you've seen or heard until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And that got their attention. That got their attention. Because now, now we can talk about resurrection. Of course, we know that moving forward, we know that resurrection is the point for which we as the people of God live. Resurrection is what defines our hope. Paul puts it simply this way. If it's in this life, we have only to hope. We are of all men most to be pitied. The life of the Christian is bound. The hope of the Christian, if we're living an authentic Christian life, is bound in the anticipation of the resurrection. Because, frankly, if the resurrection, if our physical, bodily resurrection isn't the focal point of our walk, we have to ask how fully we have made that paradigm shift. See, if we haven't made that shift, if we haven't made that shift to say, my, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, I am dead to this world and alive to God in Christ, as Paul said, if I haven't made that shift, if I can look at life in this world and be perfectly content with it, I have to ask myself, how well have I made that shift. How much of my worldview is still oriented in the worldview that is the natural product of a fallen human mind? Because that's one thing that both Jew and Gentile shared together. The worldview was rooted in the natural conclusions of a fallen human mind. To make the most out of this life because I don't know what's coming next. When Jesus introduced the idea of resurrection, he changed the dynamic completely. And he gave them reason to hope. Do not say anything until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Jesus initiates the discussion by laying out a very important principle regarding resurrection. you got to die first. I know that's kind of obvious, but it's an important thing to keep in mind. Before Jesus could be resurrected from the dead, he had to be dead. Now, we think of that relative to Jesus. It's pretty easy to grasp, but how about us? If we would have the hope of experiencing resurrection, we have to die first. And boy, doesn't Paul talk about that in the Roman letter. In the Roman letter. There's an advantage to being dead. There's a huge, and actually there's multiple advantages to being dead. Um, one of them is, and I, I love when I shared this with our people uh, being prepared for water baptism, one of the real benefits for being dead, uh, you stop sinning. I, I ask our people that are going to be back, says, where's the one place in town you can find people who absolutely cannot be tempted to sin? The cemetery. Tempt them with anything. Doesn't work. Zero response, right? They're dead, right? That's why Paul says, dead to sin, but alive to God, right? But there's another huge benefit to death. I don't know if you ever thought about this or not. A huge benefit to death is Death no longer has any fear for us. Death no longer has any hold over us. When, when Paul, quoting the prophet, says, death, where is your sting? He wasn't saying, death, you're no longer relevant. He wasn't saying, death, you, know, you no longer have any power because people still die, right? What was Paul saying when he said, death, where is your sting? When you and I encounter something that causes us to think of our mortal death, or even in that moment, that hour, when death itself knocks on our door, 
we have the distinct privilege of saying, sorry, too late. I've already dealt with you. When we have truly embraced the sacrificial death of Christ and our ability, as Paul explains it so clearly in Romans, our ability to enter into his sacrificial death, death no longer has any hold over us. That's the whole point of baptism. When a person is immersed in the water, they are immersed into the death of Christ. This is all Romans chapter 6. When a person is immersed in the water, they're immersed into the death of Christ. When they're raised out of the water. That's why you can't baptize yourself, by the way. I know it's a technical point, but you cannot baptize yourself. You have to be raised from the water. Why can't you baptize yourself? Because at the point you're in the water, you're dead. But when you're raised from the water, you're raised to the newness of life. Again, Romans chapter 6, Paul explains it all. So an advantage, or the purpose rather, of baptism is to help us see and understand that in the person of Christ, we've already experienced death. Death no longer has any fear for us. It no longer has any hold for us. It's merely a rite of passage. Now, yeah, when somebody dies, we miss them, and there's pain. And for that reason, yeah, we don't, we don't look forward to it. We don't anticipate it. We don't want it. It does mean pain and pain is separation. But we know that ultimately for the believer, there is the absolute confidence that the very thing we fear in death, which is separation, shall be eternally removed when we have all shared in the physicality of death and in the power of his resurrection. That is the beauty and that is the justification. That's the hope that J Jesus gives the disciples in this realignment of worldview. Everything up to this point, Messiah is not going to be what you were looking for. Sorry, he's not going to be a conquering king. Not going to go to Rome. Not going to kick the Romans out. Not going to, no, he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. Oh, and by the way, you need to die too. Take your cross, follow after him. Nothing's been good up until this point. But when he says, when the Son of Man has risen from the dead, everything changes. Now the entire program is completely different. It's completely rearranged. So it means to us, it means to us, as we embark in our Christian faith, first of all, we have to recognize that just the realignment of our religious ideas doesn't cut it. You know, we, we, you can accept the doctrines of Christianity and they're marvelous and we should be familiar with them. We should know what our Bible says. We should know what it is to be. We should know those things. But that does not define our Christian existence. Our Christian existence is defined by entering into a relationship with, the Christ, with Christ. And the only way to fully do that is to accept death. I said during our communion, there's a certain thing that happens when we receive the cup. Right? We accept accountability. And we also embrace the benefit. But it says Jesus took the cup. Jesus took the bread. Jesus embraced the cross. He did the unthinkable. But he did it for what he saw, who for the glory set before him. Challenging as it is, as the people of God, we have to be prepared. Jesus said, pick up your cross. We need to embrace it. We need to embrace it. Because it is that lifestyle 
not simply adding Christian doctrines to our pre-existing worldview. No, it is completely rearranging our worldview to put a crucified, resurrected Savior at the center and follow that in a life of self-denial and sacrifice for his service to the benefit of his kingdom, which is the manifestation of his character on earth. We have to embrace that. And the only thing that makes embracing that at all possible, if we are at all rational creatures, is the knowledge of what follows it, and that is resurrection. That's the authentic Christian life. One Christian put it this way, this discussion of the cross. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of the world. We have to see those things in this world that we cherish so much merely as tools to be used to achieve the ends of his kingdom and nothing more. Hold the things of the world so very lightly. To abandon the attachments of the world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. Rather, it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. I would add, nothing else would justify embracing the cross were it not for that. It meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Many of you will recognize the author from that line. It may be a death like one of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it's the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. But the reward is life in Christ. And that is the only Christianity I am interested in. God give us all the courage and the willingness to embrace that kind of faith walk because there is no other faith walk. Not that is real, not that is genuine, not that will unite us with Christ. Father, I thank you for your word this morning, Lord, and the things that Jesus says in these past several chapters, Lord, if we read them honestly, if we read them sincerely, especially uh, if we're able at all to read them uh, the way the disciples would have first heard them, they're just flat out unacceptable. Um, you know, tell me I have to embrace um, this horrific thing, the cross. Tell me I have to completely deny myself and follow after you, Lord. Um, the, the downsides just pile up too fast. And then, Lord, we hear this news. That the divine sequence is following death. There is resurrection. And just as resurrection is dependent on death... For the Christian, death is the guarantee of resurrection. Resurrection in you. Father Paul talked in his letter to the Philippians 
about the fellowship of his suffering, the fellowship he shared with your son. Lord, that is such... We sang this morning about a mountain that's too high to climb. Lord, if we're honest at all, embracing this kind of life, this self-denial, this elevation of the kingdom above all other interests and concerns and motives, Lord, that's beyond our grasp. At our best, it's beyond our grasp. So, Father, we're thankful that you do not leave us alone in this quest, Father, that you live in us by your Spirit, and it's your Spirit who works in us this desire to follow you at all costs. Father, I pray that each one of us, as we just weigh these things, Father, work out what it is to have our own cross, that, own, that, own, that unique cross that we carry, Father, that you would strengthen us to accomplish the task. For the marvelous promise we have at its, at its completion. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.